The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. This is the show that brings you a psychological perspective on common and current life issues. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips. Hi, I'm Suzanne Phillips. Thanks for joining me again on Psych Up Live. There is clear evidence that life can be challenging and at times quite traumatic. Many have faced the horror of war, school shootings, pandemics, life-threatening diagnoses, racism, hate crimes, or even the death of a loved one. In this show, Dr. Jonathan DiPiero will invite us to recognize that it's not what happens to us, but how we respond to what happens that really matters. Dr. DiPiero is one of the authors with the late Dr. Stephen Southwick and Dr. Dennis Charney of the third and wonderful edition of Resilience, the Science of Mastering Life's Greatest Challenges. Drawing upon examples, Dr. DiPiero will operationalize and exemplify the power of optimism, social support, strategies for facing fears, cognitive and emotional flexibility, and much more. He will be offering us tools for resilience. Dr. DiPiero is an Associate Professor of Psychiatry at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. He is Associate Director of Mount Sinai Center for Stress, Resilience, and Personal Growth. He's a clinical psychologist and is an expert in psychological resilience and the treatment of trauma-related mental health conditions. Dr. Jonathan DiPiero, it is my privilege to welcome you to Psych Up Live. Thank you for having me on. Okay, so let's actually start by defining resilience. Yeah, so there are many different ways that you can define resilience. One broad definition that we really like is the ability to adapt, recover, and grow from life's challenges. Okay, so in in some ways, it has to start at, what would you say the first starting point is? I face a trauma I don't know what to do. I'm overwhelmed. I'm grieving. Um, I don't know how I will go on without my spouse. What, where do we start when a person's in that position? Yeah, I would say in an ideal world, this would start well before a traumatic event. Uh, a lot of these skills are cultivated through parenting and mentorship, through teachers, through role models so that you have them in your back pocket when tragedy strikes or when hardship strikes. You, know, you lose your job, for example. You might lose someone expectedly or unexpectedly. Uh, but really, some of the things that I really look to as resilience factors that are exceptionally important are not surprising. Um, one of them is social support. Knowing who's in your corner, who you can turn to for emotional support knowing who you could turn to for practical or tangible support, crashing on somebody's couch after a bad breakup uh, and you have to move out of a shared apartment or someone to loan you money or take you to a doctor's appointment. That, that kind of support in the social support sphere is really, really 
important and central to people's coping a lot of the time. Mm. But I also think um, thinking flexibly is very important, and we can get into that a bit later. Um, Thinking about a situation in ways that are helpful and realistic rather than narrow and pessimistic and uh, overly negative. Mm. So one of the things you're saying is there's a broad, a broad span of tools that we can choose. Sometimes people think that um, the only people who really get through life are those who don't have the traumatic events. But I guess I want our listeners to know that all of the authors of the book, you, Dr. Southwick, Dr. Charney, have actually faced some rather traumatic events. Um, I wondered if you could mention that so that people understand you can really come back after difficult times. Yeah, I want to preface that by saying the idea that trauma in and of itself is damaging uh, and permanently damaging or persistently damaging is not in alignment with what we know from the research. So, for example, um, if you look at the literature, somewhere between 70 and 90% of U.S. adults will have experienced an event that our psychiatric definition considers to be traumatic. So that is a threat to their own life. Uh, They see somebody being seriously injured or killed. They learn about a loved one dying tragically. Uh, They hear and experience suffering by nature of their work as a police officer or firefighter or EMT. Those kinds of traumas, domestic violence, for example, Uh, falls under that category. Most adults in the United States have at one point in their life experienced one one of those categories, being in a natural disaster, being another one, right? Natural disaster is increasingly common. Um, But very few comparably adults go on to develop trauma-related symptoms. So I think there's a disconnect, I think, in the pop psychology literature where you hear traumatic event, post-traumatic stress disorder as the invariable outcome. It is not. Mm-hmm. It is mm-hmm. actually the exception, not the rule, that people who go through traumatic events or potentially traumatic events go on to develop uh, a psychiatric illness. Mm. So that's really important as a backdrop. 90%, up to 90% of adults have a traumatic event exposure at some point in their life, but something like 10% go on to develop PTSD. So I think that's really, really important for listeners to know, because if you pick up a book off the shelf or read a blog post, you hear, you see the word trauma and then symptoms mentioned in the next sentence. And that's not necessarily the case that persistent, you know, year plus or longer symptoms are lasting after a traumatic event invariably. Really important point. One of the the shocking, we use the example of Dr. Charney. Do I have this right? He was shot by someone Tell us just a little bit about that, because it's such a good example of going forward after that. Yeah. So uh, Dr. Charney is our our dean of the Icon School of Medicine. He's a psychiatrist. Uh, It's wonderful to have a dean who's a psychiatrist. Um, And he was, at the time he was shot, an expert in post-traumatic stress disorder, in depression, Uh, was also studying resilience and writing about resilience. Uh, The first edition of the book had come out. And he was minding his own business, getting ready to go to work. And uh, he was getting his bagel and coffee from the local um, bagel shop um, in his in his town. Um, and walking out into the parking lot, he was shot by a shotgun blast mm-hmm. um, at fairly close range. 
uh, caught him in the shoulder, lost a lot of blood. Um, he had to be rushed to the hospital. He had to have emergent surgery uh, and come to find out that the person who shot him was a former faculty member of the School of Medicine who had been fired years prior, not mm -hmm. days prior, years prior for academic or scientific misconduct. So the person had been stalking him and his family um, and, and looking for the right moment to, to strike. Uh, and so uh, Dr. Charney had to go through painful and extensive rehab, and he's open in the book about how he was wondering if he was going to be resilient himself. And in fact, he had what we would consider to be expected reactions to the event, right? Like sure. difficulty sleeping, feeling on edge, mm -hmm. feeling restless. Um, but his family and the community came around him to support him and help him to recover. Also, he, you know, you, he's not here to, in the meeting, in, in the podcast today, but he's actually a big guy, like physically mm -hmm. very fit, exercises five or six times a week and takes that very seriously. That's a big part of his identity. So the physical rehabilitation required, he threw himself into that from second one. Um, he also had the goal, I think it was two weeks after he was shot, he was scheduled to give what's called the white coat speech. So it's when the new physicians get new medical students, get their white coats for the first time, kind of indoctrinating them into medicine. Mm -hmm. And he was slated to give the speech and he showed up arm and sling <laughs> to give the speech um, mm -hmm. not being deterred by by what happened. Mm. I, I love what you're saying in terms of there, of course, are moments of despair. There, of course, are um, along the path of resilience, some of the expected grieving, um, personal doubt, anxiety, um, questioning whether you can get back to your old self or even a better self, but that doesn't mean you don't have resilience. It's part, it's really a journey. And that, it's, that's right. certainly he, he really took that journey. Let's just touch a minute on so that people have a sense of it. What happens to the brain and body when you get shot? You face a traumatic event. Yeah. So there's complicated reactions. Again, I think this is where pop psychology can oversimplify things. It's not just one part of the brain that's involved in reacting to a traumatic event. I know the amygdala kind of gets a bad rap in this. It's always the amygdala. Uh, the, the, they call it the fear center of the brain, but it is much more than that. I think it's deeply um, oversimplifying to say that one area of the brain is the fear center. Um, but one, one thing that happens, just to give an example, you can imagine you know, the stereotypical example I'll give is you, if you can imagine walking in the upstate New York country woods and you hear rustling and you don't know what it is, you have that sense of threat, your heart starts racing, um, your um, sympathetic nervous system activated, you have hormones that are circulating um, like epinephrine or adrenaline that is causing you to motivate for action to keep your body safe and you're kind of your attention, your focus is sharpened, and you prepare for action, you prepare for threat. Um, so you have a actual or perceived threat that is coming at you and you're having a noticeable response. And that same thing happens in situations like, for example, car accidents where people, uh, you know, driving along, maybe they get sideswiped at an intersection and they might feel numb or they might be really terrified initially. And sometimes, you know, it's actually quite normal to be thinking about it afterwards and, you know, going through the images of it. 
afterwards, your brain is really trying to make sense of the experience. Mm-hmm. So you're having this fear reaction that makes sense because it is motivated. A fe- it's a motivated fear reaction meant to keep you safe. Mm-hmm. Those mm-hmm. initial responses are not pathological. They are meant to keep you safe. Even shutting down and and kind of dissociating or zoning out in the moment is meant to keep you safe. It is okay. evolutionarily developed to protect you in some way, protect you psychologically from the physical pain of your body, especially if you're hurt. Uh, sometimes in conditions like PTSD, you think about sh- soldiers in combat, right? Those reactions they're having in combat are meant to keep them safe. Sometimes after the traumatic situation is over, months, years after it's over, the body and the brain are still reacting as if it is happening in the present moment. So the body and the brain are stuck in that response mode of heightened threat, wondering if a threat is lurking around every corner, thinking about it all over again. Sometimes what sustains this is self-blame. So blaming yourself for aspects of the event, we see that uh, in people who've been uh, assaulted in some way. They think, oh, if I had only done this, this, and this, I wouldn't have been assaulted. Right. And that's self-blame um, and not attributing blame where it actually deserves uh, or or is is warranted is is a vehicle for sustained threat, right? Because you're blaming yourself. It's preventing you from making sense of the experience and fitting it into your, your life narrative. So you're having a persistently elevated fear response. There's a lot of avoidance that can be in place. So we saw this for 9-11 first responders. They Many of them moved to the countryside in Pennsylvania or upstate New York, well away from this, uh, New York City. They didn't want to be reminded of that day. They didn't want to be put in situations where it could have happened all over again. So they started avoiding driving and taking trains, going over bridges. They were afraid of a terrorist attack happening all over again. It hasn't, thank God, in 22 years, but they're acting as if it will. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so your brain is always anticipating Uh, you know, in people with PTSD, uh, your brain is always looking for the threat, sometimes shooting first and asking questions later, assuming that there's a threat, acting on it, you know, irritably or aggressively. And then you come to realize, oh, actually, that wasn't uh, a threatening situation. So Um, I should go go ahead. ahead. (laughs) I was going to say, I'm picturing someone who's in a a fairly bad car accident not be believing that they can get into the car and not be stuck in frozen in the sensation and the image of the car coming at them. Mm-hmm. So you're saying um, the, the original response makes perfect sense yes. to, the per- to the situation you're in. The question is, how do we unlock it? Mm-hmm. How do we move beyond it? Yeah, so I think the whole, like, move on, moving beyond it. It's tricky. One way, and this is my wife uses this metaphor. She's also a psychologist. It's not, I think, not originally her metaphor. Um, She heard it elsewhere. But the idea is like having a traumatic event is like a tree being struck by lightning where there's a scar left on the inside of the tree, but that doesn't kill the tree. There are rings that are added on top of it. And the important thing about trauma that the last stage of trauma recovery and lots of different models of trauma recovery is uh, beautifully called re-entering life. Mm. You do your work of understanding the traumatic event, its impact on you, its 
place in your life story, and then you re-engage with life. So, for example, people who have been in a car accident and find themselves avoiding being in a car or driving a car, the most effective solution to that, the most one of the most effective strategies is to learn strategies to tolerate the anxiety and ride out the waves of understanding. If I get in a vehicle, the likelihood of this happening all over again is not zero, but not 100%, pretty low. I have a good amount to control. Uh, I am safe and I can do this. So that might start with just being in a car driving around the block, or it might then be like, you know, just like going out of your driveway, backing up and going back in. And then maybe it's going to a neighboring town, but getting yourself combating that avoidance because it makes sense, right? It's like touching a hot stove. You touch a hot stove once, you know, never to do that again. Uh, and your body has these natural avoidance mechanisms they want to avoid. Your brain, your body wants to avoid pain and discomfort. And you have this situation, this particular event in time that has been associated with pain and discomfort. And it makes sense that you want to avoid that happening again. But what your brain doesn't know in that is that that event was a particular example in time, not invariably leading to happening, needing to happen again. So you're treating the the situation as if you get into the car and you're going to crash or get into an accident again. That's not the case. That's I, not, I, o- not often the case. I, I think, mean, so you have to challenge the avoidance. Yes. And the challenging of the avoidance is tricky, but it, 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 it bears um, saying in a way that no one can expect to go over a bridge who's had who's had the 9-11 experience and who could no longer drive into the city or has had a car accident, that when they first go back in that car, of course they're going to feel yes. the anxiety. And maybe the second, 10th, and 20th. But if they believe that we can recondition it and slowly bring down that neurophysiological imprint, they hang in. That, that's right. And I also, I mean, I, I would say the faster you are able to do that in a graded, gradual way with support, the better for your well-being. Um, there was a story in the book of an extreme example of a guy that was an amateur skydiver and, um, and was going on his first skydive and the plane caught fire mm-hmm. and he they had to make an emergency landing. And he said as he was leaving the the airfield after the emergency landing, like, I know I need to get back in a plane as soon as I can, or I'm never going to do this again. So he got back in a plane a couple of days later and it didn't crash and he skydove or whatever the, the ten, past tense of skydiving is. Um, but yeah, so that's an extreme example. It's very, very important to not lean into the avoidance too much because you are basically telling yourself, I can't handle this. It's too much. These emotions are going to kill me. And this trauma is going to happen all over again. That's not, that's not the case in situations of relative safety. Now, there are some situations I can say more about this, but there are some situations where having some of those fear responses, some of that avoidance, some of that hyper arousal is adaptive, right? Mm -hmm. Combat zones. If you're in a war zone, if you're in a area that could become a war zone. If you're in a refugee camp, you're not 100% safe. And those responses are adaptive to the situation. What we're talking about is responses that no longer fit the situation. 
They mm -hmm. are no longer adaptive. They made sense at a moment, but are no longer helping you. Okay. So usually when we're in that position, people will talk about how do I lower my anxiety mm -hmm. so that I could take some steps. If I'm a rape victim, how do I dare even consider dating another person? Um, what can we offer as techniques or strategies for reducing anxiety, Jonathan? Right. So there are a number of strategies that are best deployed by a therapist in conjunction with the person with that level of anxiety. Uh, but there are also things like deep breathing. Again, many books written about this. Mm -hmm. uh, you're not hearing this for the first time, but if you give feedback to your body, if you slow down your breathing, you can give signals to your brain that you're somewhat more safe. Slow down your breathing, your panicked breathing, you make it more regular and deeper. You get corrective signals to your brain. Okay, I'm safe. I'm in a date. I'm around people. Maybe there is a friend, you know, some other part of the restaurant that can check in with me. Um, there are ways to challenge that anxiety. Okay. Maybe it starts with, you know, getting coffee in the morning in, in you know, in public with somebody um, as a way of, you know, even just seeing a friend. That kind of thing could go a long way to making small steps, not expecting that you're going to do the 100% most challenging thing um, first, but breaking it up into tiny pieces, building up your confidence um, and understanding that um, you have support and that there are things that you can do to moderate your response. Is the risk ever zero? No. So part of it is the message that you're sending to yourself. And as you say, more and more, we're aware that you know, um, whether it's meditative uh, practices or um, using the um, deep exhale literally connects you with the parasympathetic nervous system and starts to bring you down. Um, if people make a regular practice, I find sometimes, it's true of all of us, someone will think, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start to use the, uh, the awe, you know, the idea of seeing something amazing and doing a deep breath many times a day um, but then they don't the the it's like you're it's like dr charney with the exercise part of the rehab of um anxiety anxiety disorders and ptsd has to do with really doing it really getting used to using the long exhale or whether it's prayer for someone else or whether it's a certain type of connection to nature or to a pet. But there has to be a regulation with which you take serious the reduction of the anxiety. Yeah, that's right. I think that's true for meditation and yoga and all those other things. But for basically any of the other resilience factors that we talk about in the book, things like social support, calling a friend once in 10 years is not social support. <laughs> right. Um, so it's really important that People go through the book, think about what they can reasonably do, what they're doing already, and make it an intentional practice. It doesn't matter what it is. It could be any combination of those factors. But making those things a intentional, regular practice means that you have it to lean, lean on in difficult times. It is not the greatest. And 
very like nearly impossible to build those skills in the midst of a disaster, in the midst of trauma. You want to have them be basically in your DNA um, to to use, to go to as a toolkit when you need it. Um, so it's really important. It has to be practice. You have to build up all of these things like a muscle. You can't just do it once. Uh, in fact, if you just do it once, like I just as a personal example, took up uh, exercise uh, twice a week about a year ago after not being a particularly athletic person. Um, and the first couple of times I thought, I, can, I, I can't do this. I think my trainer's trying to murder me, asking me to do all of this stuff. And I got more confident. I still have some of those thoughts because it's, it's getting harder, but I'm getting more confident. Uh, but the first few times you try a new thing, it's going to be pretty inelegant. And you're going to think, oh, I can't do this. You actually can with practice. Like right. re reframing your thinking is tough. And when I work with patients with depression and anxiety, they come and say, I've really struggled to do this. The most important thing is they try. Right. We're going to have to take a brief break. Mm -hmm. Well, you've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're here with Dr. DiPiero. He's the author with the late Stephen Southwick and Dr. Dennis Charney of the third and very important edition of Resilience, the Science of Mastering Life's Greatest Challenges. Stay with us. We're back with many more examples of building resilience. Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Planning for college? Tune in to Getting In, a college coach conversation for tips, techniques, and insider perspectives. Hosted by Bright Horizons College Coach, a team of former admissions and financial aid officers, the show takes a deep dive on subjects such as choosing the best essay topic, negotiating merit aid, and navigating the common app. Listeners will learn what really goes into college acceptance decisions from the experts who used to make them. New episodes drop Thursdays on the Voice America Variety Channel. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Did you know that the quality of our daily lives is directly influenced by the design of our built environment? Our homes, our work, the way we move, and where we play are all shaped by the design of our cities. This thought-provoking new show from architect, urban designer, and educator, Carrie Pennebod, examines the complex forces that shape the making of our physical world. Lively conversations with leading experts in a variety of fields engage some of the greatest challenges facing our cities today, including climate change, affordable housing, embedded technologies, infrastructure design, architecture and the arts, urban policy, social mobility, and much, much more. Tune in every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time, so that together we can design a better world. 
Do you know that over 70% of people with disabilities are not counted in the workforce with twice the unemployment rate of the non-disabled? Join Joyce Bender, CEO of Bender Consulting Services and a disability leader as she talks about best practices and newest trends in disability employment on Disability Matters. As a person living with epilepsy and hearing loss, Joyce is an international advocate for disability employment. Tune in on Tuesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're here with Dr. DiPiero, and we're talking about resilience in the face of life's challenges. Um, So, Dr. DiPiero, we were mentioning at the break, one of the things that this book touches on that I often don't see in other resilience work is the use of spirituality and the importance of your moral compass. Tell us how using a moral compass, what that means and how does that build resilience? Yeah, so folks can call this different things. One of the key parts to understand about having a moral compass is about having guiding principles and values that you live by that are your touch points as you go through hard times, you know that you're not going to compromise on certain things. And that helps guide you through a path through hardship. You know that this is sort of what my faith tells me. This is what my upbringing gives me. This is a code that I've developed for myself where I know where the the lines are that I'm not willing to cross. That helps people have guidance um, during difficult times. And I think sometimes in the even the most challenging circumstances, and we give the example of Vietnam War POWs, and they had their military code of conduct, which they made some adjustments to, to fit the situation uh, when they were being tortured horribly um, for many years as POWs. But those principles, they held them tight, and it helped them to orient themselves and support each other and forgive each other at, at those mom- in those moments. So that's exceptionally helpful. And you're right. I don't think any, you know, many other books um, talk about this, but there actually is a growing and compelling literature about elements of moral compass and their impact on well-being. So, for example, altruism, people who are altruistic, giving of their time, giving of money or resources when they have them, uh, tend to get a, you know, tend to get a um, well-being benefit from that. It helps the other person, but it also helps them. Uh, and, and they've looked at studies of kidney donors, you know, strangers donating kidneys, family members mm-hmm. donating kidneys, and there's an out there's a well-being benefit to the individual donor afterwards. So those things are exceptionally important. I also think we touch, as you mentioned, touch upon spirituality, which is a huge part of people's resilience that again is not touched. I think, in the academic literature as much as it ought to be. There are studies of 
uh, veterans where having a spiritual practice is associated with lower risk of mental, uh, adverse mental health outcomes like depression or anxiety or alcohol use. There are studies that show that attending church or a worship service of some kind conveys or is associated with some health benefit uh, to yourself in terms of uh, mortality um, and uh, just overall physical well-being. And why is that? Well, a few different reasons. One, it gives a structure and a value system. It gives you some place to be. You literally have to, you know, shower, get dressed, put your shoes on, and leave your house and go someplace. It fights against the moment, the the urge to stay on your couch and binge watch something on TV. It connects you to other people. It gives you a built-in support network of people that are in your corner or with you and doing the same common thing and that you can support as well. But it need not be a formal religious practice. It can be a spiritual practice like yoga or meditation, or some people feel this way walking in the woods, some experience of connecting to something greater than yourself. Mm-hmm. We call this getting out of your own head. We call this mm-hmm. transcendent experiences. It could be really be any number of things But especially if you're a worrier, getting out of your own head is exceptionally helpful. Seeing the bigger picture, having an awe experience, as you said, those things have in the literature a very clear health benefit. But I think certainly more work needs to be done integrating this into how we speak to patients in a healthcare setting, how we even ask about their spiritual practices, because it's a huge part of people's lives. Mm -hmm. That is, it is. It's almost taboo to talk about in some circles. Mm Now, one of the things you talk about, and I was able to relate to it also, it's during the pandemic, it was impossible for the healthcare workers to save everyone. And the fact that they had to make choices of focusing on the person who had the best chance was for many a moral injury. And the in the aftermath, and this was even true of, we were talking before, before of the EMS group, they simply could not get to. Thousands of calls were coming in. So when we thought about as the psychologists, part of one of the interventions we did, this is the American Group Psychotherapy Association, is we offered groups for some of these caregivers so that they would not stay with a feeling of, I didn't do what I was supposed to do. I I went against my code. It was impossible to not be in that situation. And so the idea of social support in the face of moral injury seems to me a really important one. I wondered what you thought of that. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And that's something that we certainly encourage in, in our healthcare workers. And there's moral distress and moral injury in the overall practice of healthcare even outside of the acute waves of the pandemic. There's moral distress in other industries as well. And one of the most important things is having a buddy, having a partner, having some kind of social support, um, because you can go through a, an event like that. Say you're a nurse or a physician working in the emergency department or the ICU during the pandemic, and patients come in, and even if you did have the resources, many are dying. Um, in April or March of 2020. You could walk away from that thinking, I failed as a healthcare provider. It was all my fault. I should just quit 
doing this? Is it going to be like this forever? Uh, I did something wrong. I'm the angel of death because everybody's dying around me. Uh, but those are cognitive distortions. Those are negative automatic thoughts. Those are judgments, self-judgments that don't align with the facts or something like, it's all my fault that these patients died. If only I had done A, B, and C, it would have been different. And we torture ourselves. The benefit of talking to somebody else is they can say, whoa, wait a second. That's a lot of wild speculation you just have. Um, and what about this aspect and this aspect and this aspect? Or they could say, hey, I think, I think and feel the same thing. Can, could, is it possible we're both right? No, we're probably both way off base. And there are so many other contributing factors. But be, having somebody to talk to, whether it be a therapist or a group of peers, you can bounce ideas off each other and get correction, corrective feedback for those negative judgments you're having about yourself. But the problem is, and you know this as a psychologist, that when you're really depressed or you're struggling with PTSD or moral distress or moral injury, you think you have all of these negative beliefs about yourself and you're so worried that someone else thinks that if you ask someone else or you tell someone else, they'll say, yeah, you're right. You're wrong. Like you're a terrible person. It is mm -hmm. all your fault. Mm -hmm. You did this, this, and this, and it, you know, we blame you and you know, you're, you're, you know, terrible. Um, so they're so concerned that the judgments they have about themselves would be validated by other people that they don't share with other people, but they then never get the corrective opportunities. Right. Uh, of someone right. saying, oh, wait, wait a second. Yes, right. We're going way off the well, off yeah. the tracks there. One of the EMS lieutenants, uh, Anthony Almagera, his book is Riding the Lightning. He finally at one point just started cooking on Sundays and asking anyone to come for an Italian dinner just to do what you're saying. So other people would start to be able to share being in a similar place. Mm -hmm. The other thing I want to mention is... In times of the pandemic, but even in other times, touching someone and helping them in a time of trauma, small is big. Mm -hmm. That is, the, the nurse who was able to later tell a family, she, she died peacefully. I know you are of this religion, and I put the rosaries in her hand, or whatever it, it happens to be. Small is big. Um, on the road to resilience, you know, I think I think people think they have to have a very big dramatic situation. One physician, um, and this came from a colleague of mine uh, in Canada, he would ask that everyone do a moment of silence if the person they were trying to revive passed. Mm -hmm. And the message was. This was someone who was important. We may not have known his whole life, but he was important. Yeah. So this reminds me of work done by an amazing colleague of mine at Mount Sinai. Um, her name is Dr. Myrna Mohanraj, and she is a critical care doctor. And during the pandemic, they started a project at Mount Sinai, I think might have been piloted other places, where on the doors of patients who were intubated, who had the tube down their throat, had all these medical devices, were barely recognizable, they're probably swollen, mm -hmm. was, this is Jeff. He is a teacher. He likes this, <laughs> this, and this. His family yeah. members are named this, this, and this. It personalizes the interaction. When the patient wasn't awake, might die. It also motivates you to connect with them and to connect with the family, know something about them 
that they can't share with you. And it was deeply, um, deeply beneficial, I think, to the well-being of the staff as well, knowing that they're, you know, this is human, like helping to humanize someone in, in the worst possible situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's being replicated across our health system right now. So it's- amazing ICU based project that, you know, is really ba- based on social connection. It's it's amazing the stories that have come out of such hardship that everyone faced. Um, one of the one group of people that struggle with the feeling of it'll never go away are the people suffering with long COVID. Mm-hmm. And for those who can't seem to move out of that feeling of I'll never I'll never be okay. How do we address that kind of anxiety? Yeah, I think one of the ways that we can address that anxiety, just speaking as an individual, is greater investment in interventions um, and treatments and diagnostic tests and follow-up and rehabilitation programs um, for people with long COVID. I think the federal government is is doing that. We actually have um, one of our faculty members at Mount Sinai, Dr. David Petrino, was like the, one of the first people to send up the warning flare about long COVID and has been for four years now almost advocating um, for programs um, and started one and uh, contributes to another uh, at Mount Sinai to understand and address long COVID. So I think part of the answer there is to, to hear their concerns, to validate them. I think a lot of people with long COVID had felt at least initially, maybe still some invalidated by the health system and validation of, hey, we know this is real. We know this affects your biology. It affects your heart, your blood vessels, your respiration, immune system. Um, We know it's real. Let's start from that place of validation. That validation is exceptionally important as a healing mechanism. Because if you feel like your symptoms are being invalidated, then you're going to feel like you're going insane. Yes. Like your reality, the worth beneath your feet is crumbling, that you feel alone in this, that um, alone in your suffering and that help isn't available. So that's, I think, an important starting place. And I don't, I don't think uniformly we're there yet. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a little bit about role modeling. Uh, we're, we're mentioning it. And people are always interested in mirror neurons. Tell, tell us a little bit about how this feeds into the resilience building. Yeah. So again, this is another thing where probably entire bookshelves of books have been written about mirror neurons. And I'll just give you an example. This comes from research decades ago where they had two primates hooked up to brain. Um, They had brain electrodes. They had EEG nets on their head measuring their brain activity. And one primate was doing a task where they had to put, I think, pegs in a board. And that primate who was acting and putting the pegs in the board, their motor cortex was lighting up because they were activating their motor system, putting the pegs in the board. But what they also observed in the other primate who was sitting next to them also wired up is that primate just watching the person or their buddy do the thing was activating that observer's motor cortex. Uh, so they, this was called, you know, mirror neurons, where you see mm-hmm. a mirroring effect in people's brains. Now, I think this research is useful, but mirror neurons, just like, you know, many other things, are not the cure-all 
end-all be-all of psychiatric disorders like PTSD, like Mm -hmm. autism. It is never distilled into one thing. Human beings are much more complex than that. So there Mm -hmm. is some excitement around mirror neurons, but it is not a core, core explanatory factor for psychiatric disorders, at least as we understand them. My example of it is um, people watching football and their behavior as as the uh, game is going on. Mm-hmm. I, I start to think that part of the addictive quality of watching is the stirring of, um, you know, the, the response in terms of being in their mind on that field playing. But um, it's, it's an important thing to consider role modeling, mm-hmm. even if we don't get to the neurological piece, because I think that sometimes people can't jumpstart themselves, but someone might be able to be a role model for them. It's the connection we're talking about. And the connection helps regulation and so much that has to do with anxiety and PTSD and traumatic response. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. And it it can be just one person. There's plenty of studies of kids who've had many life disadvantages and they have one mentor or one teacher that gives them extra time, uh, sits them down and talks to them after class. That is life-changing. Yes. Even those little moments of interaction are life-changing. And the other thing that I tell people, especially in you know academia where I am, that you're going to find one mentor for one thing another mentor for another thing and another mentor for another thing still. And it's likely not going to be the same person for That's every true. aspect of your personal and professional life. Uh-huh. Um, you're going to take like a collage of different lessons from different mentors. Some mentors are really great scientists that get really angry very easily or don't have very good social skills. So you're going to take what they do well and leave the rest. And then you're going to find a mentor who does the social stuff really well. And you're going to take that and integrate that into the other bits. And they're not mutually exclusive. So that's important to think about, too. Like, what are you looking for mentorship for? You're never going to find, you may not ever find the perfect mentor for 100% of your life. uh, But you'll take elements along the way, like you're loading a backpack with different lessons as you go through life. And then it's really important in going through difficult times, you could even ask yourself, oh, what would this person do? Sometimes mm-hmm. people say who are religious, yes, like, yes. What, would, what would Jesus do? Right, um, right. And it is helpful to them to conjure up how their mentor, what they've said before in times of stress, how they've dealt with it or how they might deal with it as, um, as almost a memory or a guidepost. Mm. That, that reminds me of your section on the book also of uh, challenging your mind as a way of dealing with anxiety the idea if you're hysterically worried about uh, a medical procedure, look up what the procedure is. Um, the more, there's two pieces to that. There's knowing, and then there's also the ability to change your mind and change the plan. They, um, after Hurricane Katrina, they were interviewing someone in charge of the baskets that were lifting people from the roof. And they said to him, what was the plan? And he said the plan was to keep changing the plan mm-hmm. so that, that that flexibility, you know, of thinking. But I really do think when people um, people can really offset anxiety by becoming their own expert in, in terms of what they're facing, checking it out with other people. It seems to me that that's an important component of resilience. 
It is. I would just say that, like, for example, the internet can be a great place <laughs> and a dangerous place. You're and right. people could scare themselves even more. But it's, so it's really important. And I think this was a problem during the pandemic and some mistrust was sown, not, not some, a lot of mistrust was sown of healthcare professionals. I think it's really important to know what good information is. Yes. To educate yourself because you can't rely on a news story to adequately portray a summary of a research paper or a finding. Absolutely. Uh, you, sometimes a finding is blown out of proportion, becomes a headline, and you look at the paper and you realize that was just like a footnote in the paper that now became this whole news story. Um, so it's really important to think about who the credible sources of information are. And it might not be the website that you, you typically go to. It might be a doctor that you trust. It might be um, a peer. Uh, even, even sources that can look credible, might, you know, they might be leaving out important information. Um, try to think about the purpose of the article you're reading. Is it to scare you? Is it to motivate you? Is, does it have a bias in some way? You have to be an informed consumer. But, you know, for example, you know, taking a medication and reading on the label, you might die. You might have a heart attack. Um, chances are your doctor talked to you about the risk benefit of taking those medications. Um, and you could be scared by those side effects and say, no, never, I will not take it. But, um, you know, thinking about an honest conversation of your doctor about the risk and benefit is really helpful. And at some point, you know, trusting the trusting the advice that you're getting from uh, adequately trained professionals. I, you're so right. And one step toward resilience would be being a cautious reader and user of information. Yes. Recently, there was a headline. I believe the headline said, I'll make it up, something like, it was a vaccine for a kid for mumps, measles, and it said, measles vaccine and heart attacks. Now, that would put together in my mind as a mother, wait a minute, it didn't say <laughs> measles versus, it didn't say prevents, it did so that you're so right in that the way it's it's actually presented on the page can be extremely confusing and very anxiety producing. Yeah. So just to give you an example, sometimes you'll read a paper, we can have a whole nother podcast about this. You, you might read a news article and say, it might say, oh, you know, using plastic as just as an example might double your risk of getting this type of cancer. But then you look at the literature and you find out your risk of getting that type of cancer at baseline is like half of 1%. And then doubling the risk is 0.2%. Yes. Uh, so yes. that it's doubling numerically, but it's still very, 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 very low. Yes. It's not from 20% and now it became 40%. Yes. And we could do another whole show on AI. Um, I want to, as we're, we're almost out of time, one of the things I loved was... Um, the chapter that was devoted to Stephen Southwick facing his death. Um, and I like that he said, love is the heart and soul of resilience. I think that that's, that's really, that pulls in regulation when you feel loved, communication, connection, social support. Um, he seemed a very bright man, but a man also with a, a sense of humor. I think he says, I'm not afraid of death. I just don't want to be there when it happens. That's a Woody Allen quote. 
Oh, is it? Oh, okay. Yeah, he was quoting his, Woody his, Allen. Oh, his last words are Woody Allen quote. Okay. Um, well, let's take let's give a take home message to our listeners, Jonathan, with respect to building resilience in the face of very difficult times. Yeah, so I want to say a couple of things. One of the definitions that Dr. Southwick gives, and I think of the last words in the book, is that for him, resilience is doing the best you can with what you got. And some people have different internal resources. Some people have different external resources. It's not just up to the individual to be resilient and recover from situations. It's the society and the community as well coming around the individual to support them. And it happens to a greater or lesser extent across our country. So that's something to keep in mind, too. It's not just on your shoulders. You might read the book mistakenly thinking that we're saying that we're not. We have, a, we have an understanding of things that are outside of people's control. Mm-hmm. Um, but that planning ahead is very important. And practicing some of these skills before you need them is essential. So practicing connecting to optimism, optimism, gratitude, social support, a little bit of physical activity, some connection to meaning and purpose, because you don't want to be trying to sew a hole in a soccer net during a soccer game. But that is to say, if you have holes in your toolbox in the midst of a crisis, you're not trying to like fill those holes and deal with the crisis. You want to have a robust support system and set of tools that are second nature to you so that when you really need them, this is like doctors practicing uh, emergency procedures in a hospital or surgeons practicing a surgery beforehand in virtual reality. You want to know that you know how to do something beforehand yeah. uh, so that when the moment comes, you don't even have to think. Thank you. Um, I, want, I want to thank you for coming on Psych Up Live and expanding our understanding of resilience. You're really saying it's never too late and it's always precious, powerful, and possible. How can people find your book? Yeah, so our book is available on Amazon. Um, and so I encourage folks to, to get it there. You can also get it from our publisher, Cambridge University Press. They've been amazing. Okay. Um, you can hear this in any prior show as a podcast on my host site, my website, or any of the, the platforms, iTunes, Stitcher, Apple, Amazon. Remember, you can... Send me a comment or a question at radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Until next week, please be safe, try some resilience. Thanks and be listening. Thank you for tuning in to Psych Up Live. Please join Dr. Suzanne Phillips for another edition of our programming next Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until then, be well and be listening.